This is Colton, Connecticut. The cult group would isolate you from the rest of the world with this delusion of superiority. We have the word directly from God. We know exactly the will of God, and other people don't. The elitism that came with this cult separated us from being part of our communities. You know, as a child, I wasn't allowed to tell the doctor the truth. I remember going for clenching problem in my jaw. I had TMJ. My jaw would get stuck from muscle tension. And the doctor would say to me, is everything okay at home? And I would say, yes. And he'd say, are you okay? Are you experiencing stress? You know, I did not know how to interact with an adult in the world truthfully because I didn't know what truth was. I didn't know how to say, I'm not all right. This isn't normal because abuse was my norm. And in high school, once a teacher referred me to the counselor, she obviously had called the counselor and said, Faith doesn't look good. She looks like she has bruises on her neck. Can you call her down and talk to her? And I remember the counselor calling me down and sitting there with my brow all ruffled, like, why are you talking to me? Like, what do you mean bruises? I don't have any bruises on me. And I remember looking in the mirror. Like, I remember now what I looked like looking in the mirror. And I had black circles under my eyes. I looked like I was so drained and unhealthy and abused. And there was nothing in me that knew that I could ask for help because it was ingrained in you. We are the children of God. We know God. Everyone else is of the world and that will destroy you. They would isolate you from any type of help that you could get, any type of perspective that would give you independence. But you can imagine the mental torture I had been through since being a little girl and never had professional help for being sexually abused in the first place, never mind the persecution that happened because I was abused and because that sparked interest and a subject for scrutiny. My mental state was fragile. It was very difficult to concentrate. It was very difficult to to feel normal, to feel accepted, to feel safe, to feel natural. Once I reached the age of 15, I received a phone call one day from Jean Spaven herself. And it sounded a little like she was tired of the whole chasing faith and hunting her down type of deal. So her words to me were, why don't you just, just let it go. Just give it all to God. Just make a change today and let's, let's have a fresh start. And I remember feeling the biggest wave of relief I've ever felt in my life. Like, oh my gosh, this might be over. You know, this had been seven solid years of honestly torture. And I was like, okay, yes, I'm all for it. 
okay, God, I'm ready to, you know, repent of everything, just leave it all behind. And I was willing to play the game and do what I was asked to do. But I honestly believed that she was the real deal. I really believed that she was a prophet and that I needed to do the things that she said. And this was my chance. I was like, okay, let's do it. So I made an outward confession and a repentance that was visible enough for people to see the crying and, you know, to really earn the status of, okay, I'm different now. I was just starting high school at this time. And I felt like I was starting a new chapter. Like Finally, their foot was off my throat. And I began to just take part in things and start to not be isolated anymore and start to be involved in things. I was finally able to breathe a little. I was given a little bit of wiggle room to just be accepted to a degree, even though I was watched very carefully. And there were many times still where I got phone calls and I was accused of spiteful jealousy and accused of murmuring and, you know, discipline for things. And the funny thing was, is that the other kids in the church say there was a situation that involved a few of us where somebody was made fun of or, or somebody said something about someone, you know, if a few of us were sat down and all questioned together by Mrs. Spademan or one of the ministry members, when the other ones would say they were sorry and cry and pray and come back, because, you know, you always had to go away to pray by yourself and then come back. And they would tell you if you were repentant enough or not. (laughs) They would tell you if you got through to God or not. Everyone else would get through to God and get forgiven, but not me. The targeting of me personally was to keep control of my dad and to get my dad to feel obliged to financially support their endeavors. I really do feel that money was a huge motivator in this group that held people down, foot on the throat, to finance. I really believe that Mrs. Spademan had something to prove. And she needed money to be able to do that, to be able to prove to her family that she was not trash, that she was not uh, her past, that she was worth something, and she, she deserved people to support her. So when I turned 17, I was graduating high school, and I was about to start college. And as everything else in my life from the time I I was 18 months old, Mrs. Spademan's permission had to be asked. It wasn't approached as her permission. It was approached as, can you please ask God what he wants for faith? And the answer was that I was only allowed to apply to one school, which was UConn, I was only allowed to commute. I was not allowed to stay there for orientation. I was not allowed to live there, but I was to commute and they would get me a car, but I had to work at the family business and fulfill my church duties. So I 
followed that plan because I didn't know anything other than obedience um, up to this point. And I began to do really, really well in school. I was going for a bachelor's in art therapy. I had an independent ceramics study beginning. I was at the beginning of my senior year at UConn with a 4.0. And I get a phone call from the ministry over in the UK. In the middle of a church service, they call you up into a little office upstairs in the church, which was scary. You never knew why you were being called up there, but it usually was never good. So I get called up there, and in the matter of minutes, I left that office coming downstairs with the decision that I was withdrawing from UConn and I was moving over to the UK. I always said I would never move over there, ever. I was 20 at this time. I was asked to go to the UK. I was invited. It was presented as an honor that I go over and I become a servant. Okay. So at the time, I didn't know that this meant that I would be letting go of my earning potential, that I would delay myself. 12 years of adulthood, that my life would be put on hold and I would become a church slave in the home of one of Mrs. Spademan's sons for the next 12 years. It was supposed to be six months. 12 years later, I left the UK with nothing. So Jean Spademan's home in Mansfield Woodhouse sat on a street where Consequently, many other families in the church bought houses on the same street. So this street started to become dominated by Bethel Church and eventually international church families. Her house was the hub of communication, of interaction, of whatever planning or information was being talked about or planned or anything to do with the cult group. Her house was the hub. Okay. Her house was where her family came. Usually they would all gather at her home. So she was married to Fred Spademan, which was a loveless marriage. He was a drinker. He lived in the downstairs bedroom by himself. He really had no say in the household, nothing that went on. She took care of him, but there was no love, affection, or respect. She was taking care of hand and foot. People who lived in her house had to be on call 24-7. They had to do whatever they were told, asked. There was a full staff at all times. There were people to attend to her and her personal needs. There were people to attend to her medical prescriptions. There were people to do the grocery shopping. There were people who would be on the schedule to come peel vegetables for especially Sunday dinner. Sunday dinner was the major thing. Desserts had to be made, meats bought, vegetables prepared, all the items 
for the dinner that her children required. One person would come in and do the brass cleaning every week. One person would come in and do the deep cleaning once a week. People would do the laundry, the ironing, the gardening, the woodwork, the improvements on the house, the day-to-day cleaning, the preparation of anything was covered by someone who was, in quotes, a servant. The object of the plan was that people who were servants were doing their their due diligence because God saved them from the world. So they owed it to God's servant, who was Mrs. Spademan, to prioritize her above themselves, their families, their education, their job. Anything that would keep them from serving her was an idol. If you were on the roster of working in her house, it meant that you were included in the in-group. If you weren't and you prioritized your own family, your own job, your education, that meant that you weren't as committed as everyone else. At one point during her ministry, they went to Honduras and they recruited young people from Honduras that were too old to be adopted, but were interested enough to follow them to the UK and to start working in homes. Some of them would work in Mrs. Spademan's house. Some of them would work in the houses of the people who worked in her house. There was a whole schedule. Generally, it was either my dad or Kevin Hamill would be the driver, the person that locked the gates at night. They would have to like pray and exercise any evil spirits that had come into the house each day. And the doors had to be locked. The gates had to be locked. The cars had to be locked. If anyone left anything unlocked, they would be responsible for whatever evil spirits came into the home or the car because of their failure for excellence. So men like my dad, John Hibbert, Kevin Hamill would be the brawn. So they would be the ones that showed up to confront people. They would go out and walk people home because people weren't allowed to ever go anywhere, especially women were never allowed to go anywhere by themselves. They would be Mrs. Baden's drivers. There definitely were a select few men who she would keep very close, who would neglect their wives for her and their own children and their businesses. Kevin Hamill and my dad were both prospering business owners who many times left their businesses and most of the time left their wives for her. Mrs. Bateman never went to church other than a wedding. And I used to ask my parents, why, why doesn't she go to church? And they would say, oh, she's kind of like an antenna. So if she was to go to church, she would be so overwhelmed by everybody's evil spirits that she would just not be able to cope, that she would get so overwhelmed, she would just collapse. In those 12 years, behavior modification did not stop. That was a constant in this group, that you were to speak a certain way, you were to 
answer a certain way. You were to offer your services a certain way. You were to be cheerful at all times. You were to work 16, 18 hours a day. There were times that I worked 24 hours a day. There was one time I stood and washed dishes and did other jobs in between for 24 hours on my birthday for the gain of other people. We were not compensated. There were other people doing this too. You would just live in homes and work in them. So you had to work from the minute you woke up in the morning to the minute you went to bed at night. And you know, over many, many years, there was not spare time to do anything of your own choice. So when you lived there, you were on their clock at all times. I was not allowed to ever sit down and turn the TV on and watch a show the entire 12 years I lived there. Restrictions were so tight. If you lived over there, you were at their mercy and your job was to do anything that was asked of you because Mrs. Fademan's children were not Christians. And it was our responsibility to show them the love of God that they may one day accept Christ, which was a total scam. Four out of five of her children were not even remotely interested in God. They had the church people serving them hand and foot, accommodating them, hosting them, lavishing them with fun and adventures and taking them on ski trips and blessing them and doing all these things in the name of Jesus. I went over to her house one time and was required to help. There was no lounging. It was, if you're there, you're working. So I had begun to help the cleaning in the kitchen, and I made sure that the girls told me exactly what they wanted me to do. Tell me exactly. So I was doing exactly what they wanted. And Mrs. Baven came down and got so angry that I was cleaning the fridge in a way that she didn't want me to. And she made me a public spectacle in front of everyone, ranting about how I was so wrong in what I was doing and how dare I. And I was making a mess of everything. And it was so it was such a normal thing. I should have expected it, which which I did, which is why I was gingerly doing the cleaning and asking for specific instructions so that there couldn't be anything that would displease her. She comes down, objects to everything, and everyone treats me different because she just showed them how to treat me. And so the next day, I come back to the house and somebody questioned me on my way. They're like, are you sure you want to go back? Are you ready? Meaning, was I repentant enough to go back? And I said, yes, I'm ready. So I went back and she was sitting outside on a bench. And I said something to the fact of, can I just talk to you for a minute? She wanted nothing to do with me. This had been the norm my whole life, especially my childhood. I was repulsive to her. I was too strong-willed, and she had lots of reasons why she didn't like me. And so I thought, well, this time, there's no one else around. So I took full advantage of her being by herself, 
And I sat down and I said to her firmly, but kindly, I was only trying to help you. I always try to help. And if something was wrong, I don't mind you asking me to do it differently. That's fine. And I'm sorry if that upset you. And I remember the look in her eyes when she looked at me. It was the first time that I saw something separate from her body. It was like a different being inside her eyes to the body. And I felt like I was reaching something that I hadn't been able to identify before. And it felt like evil. It wasn't a holy being that I had been so fearful to disrupt or or to upset all these years. I saw in her that she was no better than anybody else. It's a facade that I had been fighting with all these years. And I, I wasn't disrespectful, but I felt that I was finally able to stand up for myself in a way that showed that it wasn't fair to treat me with disrespect. That for me was the start of my standing up for myself and the strengthening of my muscles, so to speak, to get out of the cult I had brought up in. So when I left the UK, I was kicked out of the home that I had served in for 12 years. And Mrs. Spademan's son told me I was a selfish bitch. And it was my time to leave. And I remember not one person in that church over there in the UK that I had served in and attended faithfully for those 12 years, not one person cared. They just said goodbye. And it was another time that I remember like the wind being knocked out of me. Like there was no loyalty and there was no moving up that totem pole. You could work until you ground yourself to the bone and there was no favor that came upon you for being a good worker, a faithful friend. Those things were not attributed to those of us who had once been labeled as a problem. So the working really was a selfish motive for the people who took people like me just in time before we got financial freedom, just before I graduated UConn and may have begun to make a life for myself. Just keeping that control over people in the different phases of their lives. I left the UK, I came back to the US and began to serve in the church here in Connecticut again, which at that time was in its pineal phase. And the church was changing. You know, things were changing. Mrs. Spademan had died by this time. And it was funny. It was like people didn't know what to do with themselves after she died. She had been like a female priest to the whole group of people as if they couldn't do anything themselves. They they all had to go through her. And it was like, what do we do now that she's that she died? You know, and so when people finally got it together, they started 
kind of changing structure and how things were going. And the focus became growing the number of people in the church. And I was beginning to be pressured by the pastors here in America, including my own father, to get people saved, to tell people the gospel, get them in, get them in your groups, tell them what to do. They need to be on time. There was lots of pressure and um, heavy-handed structure to how they were trying to grow the church. So they're trying to fill up the UK church. They're trying to fill up the Connecticut church. And more and more, I'm getting this sense of, I do not want to treat people with unkindness. I do not want to push people. I don't want to stand by the way I was treated and watch other people feel even an ounce of what I felt. I was about 32 when I came back to the U.S. And I was starting to think for myself. And it's really sad to say that. It took me 32 years to start to think for myself. It started, you know, a a few years before that. It's a gradual process. But when you've been mentally abused for a very long time, you're delayed. And I could still see the delays today. And I'm in my 40s. But I was beginning to think for myself. I was beginning to encourage people with language that didn't sound like the group. And people started to hone in on me again. And I remember several times being cornered and questioned, especially by Adam Bowles, as to why I was saying things, why people were reporting to him that I was saying things that didn't match up with the plan. And I never shied away from a confrontation. I was well-versed in confrontation. And I would talk about it and I would hear their side. It wasn't only Adam Bowles. It was also John Monahan and some other young pastors. And I would always listen, but I would always stand up for what I felt. And what I, what I felt was love towards other people. And then one night, I believe it was February of 2014, I had a meeting and the leaders needed to go and meet at Kevin Hamill's house. So my parents were coming to the meeting and as soon as I got there, I was whisked downstairs into the basement. Come to find out that my parents had arranged with Adam Bowles, John Monahan, and another young pastor to trick me into being interrogated in the basement. So they sat me down and they told me all the reasons that they had to accuse me of going against the group, essentially heresy, you know, not playing by the book and confronting me on all the ways that I was an unrighteous person and I needed to change my ways. And I remember not cowering 
to the opportunity to be treated like I had been my whole life. And I remember sitting up straight and confronting them right back, not taking their abuse. And I remember standing up after three hours of being interrogated in this cold basement by these three people who at some point got very out of hand. And I remember staying until I had been able to say everything I needed to say. And I stood up and I closed the door behind me and I never, ever went back. That was the day that it all ended for me, that I was leaving this cult.